Wumanjika. My name is Larry Walsh, and I'm an elder of the Tunnarong people and the Kulin Nations. And we acknowledge we are on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri, Wurrung people, and the Boomerang people. And we pay our respects to their ancestors, and we also pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And through them, we also pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Islander communities that live in the Western suburbs. Welcome to FCAC Radio, a podcast series produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre, platforming artists, creatives and stories in Melbourne's West and beyond. Hello there. My name is Bigwa Chual. In this episode, I engage in a riveting conversation with Atong Atem, a painter, photographer and writer. Atong is whimsical, willful, wondrous and basically a Sassanese icon. I added that last part. We talk about being visibly black and navigating a racially charged identity as an artist. Her newfound joy in roller skating, baking and planting herbs on her windowsill. I'll go with the assumption also that her dinners are exquisitely garnished on most evenings. Atong, I am so honored to be able to have this conversation with you. I think you are an extraordinary person, an extraordinary artist, and you're known for really vibrant, conspicuous, extraordinarily amazing, intimate portraiture. You grew up in the Central Coast in New South Wales. Could you tell us what that was like? My family's been on the Central Coast for many years. We moved to Australia in 1997 and pretty much immediately were located there. No one from our family, let alone from our cultural background, was on the Central Coast. It was a very isolating place to grow up. I have four siblings. I've got three brothers and a little sister. And my cousins at some point were living there as well, who are three lovely boys that are all younger than me. Uh, So I grew up in, in a foreign place, feeling very isolated, feeling very uh, separate from the community in which we lived. But I had family um, close to me and we were physically very close to each other. I think we always lived within like two, three streets of each other at the time. But it didn't feel, I don't know, I think just the fact that we had relocated to a different country was enough to make everything that felt foreign feel like it's okay to feel foreign or it's supposed to feel foreign, if that makes sense, in the sense that it wasn't like experiencing gentrification or something. We, we were the ones who were alien coming into a new place. So there was an element of confusion and all of that stuff. And most of my understanding of the culture in which we'd moved into came from the media. I learned to speak English from watching The Simpsons, you know, and from watching um, uh, what was that really great sci-fi show we used to watch, Red Dwarf, just really silly things like that. But it definitely warped my relationship to what, like, Western culture was because everything felt so performative, which realistically is not that far from the truth in some ways. But as a young person, I was just really concerned with fitting in with my brothers, being the only girl in the family up until my baby sister was born a year after we we moved and, you know, waiting for her to catch up in terms of being able to communicate with her. So I spent a really long time in my childhood just trying to be cool like my brothers, following their lead. And because they're boys, 
and a society that responds to black boys differently to to how they respond to black girls, the way that they were able to sort of integrate or like feel somewhat comfortable in their alienation in, you know, white Australian Central Coast was really different to how I felt when I came into my like girlhood. So initially it was just like I wanted to play sports and be cool like them. And in reflection, it's it wasn't that people thought that they would simply cool people were like, you know, to some extent exoticizing them, but we were, you know, young. And I found that because we started, I started in kindergarten, my relationship to my peers was less fraught in terms of racial politics or whatever than my relationship to my teachers and my relationship to shopkeepers and adults in the world. So I've always like struggled with that. People in in places of authority really sort of made it known to me as an actual young little girl uh, that they didn't like me and didn't want me to be there and that they felt threatened by my existence. The kids were confused. They weren't, as in the kids that hadn't come across someone as dark as me or from a different background or who spoke a language so foreign to them. So there, there was like a, I don't know, curiosity from people my own age, but the adults who should have known better performed their racism in more blatant ways. Other than all of that, we lived in a very, very physically beautiful place, gorgeous beaches and really beautiful bushland and all of that stuff that I think has been a pivotal part in my relationship to to this country as an adult. I'm really grateful for access to just like beautiful landscape and such varied landscape. And as a child, that was also like an escape for me, I think. But yeah, high school me was like, okay, let me get out of here. As soon as I'm old enough, I need to get out of this tiny little town. And that was my mission for so long. And as soon as I turned 18, I moved to the next biggest town, which was Newcastle. (laughs) And comparatively, it's, it's still a relatively small town. But I think from there on, like, I never felt at home on the Central Coast and my relationship to place was always one of I can leave once I have the funds, once I have the freedom or whatever. Like I never felt tied down and that sort of influenced how I relate to my practice as an artist. I've never felt tied to one particular medium. I'm not just a writer or a painter or, you know, a photographer. I feel like I can do all things, almost said all things through Christ who strengthens me. Grew up very Christian. (laughs) Um, I I hear you on that one. I definitely hear you on that one. I quickly wanted to ask you, whose country um, did you grow up on? Yeah, that's a great question. So where I grew up is called Kuringai or Guringai, and it's sort of semi-coastal but also has lots and lots of um, similar to the Blue Mountains kind of thing but also mangroves. Like it's maybe the most diverse place I've ever lived with in terms of the, natu- the natural landscape. But, yeah, it is it is called Kuringai and sometimes Guringai. It's worth looking up. It's extremely beautiful place. I want to delve into a little bit around, you and I are both African. We're both Sassanidese. You're from Bor and I'm from Nasset. We're visibly Black people, visibly Black women. How did that shape your identity and how you saw yourself? And how does that impact on your art? I think being a visibly Black woman in this country especially has definitely had a really, really big impact on my art. I was recently thinking about it in terms of like, I don't know, my art practice for a proposal that I was doing. And so I had to think about what I do, what I've been doing, why I do it. And 
I kind of concluded that a lot of the art that I make is escapism and it's so fantastical and colourful and vibrant and, like, surreal because those are the only spaces in which I feel like my body is safe, you know, unreal spaces and to some extent but not all the way, spaces that are like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I don't know, the internet, these sort of in-between spaces that don't exist physically within the real world in which we live. I, I've struggled a lot with finding a truth about my view of myself that is outside of white supremacy and outside of racism and outside of, you know, sexism and outside of colorism and all of that. But I grew up here and I grew up under all of those things. So the seeds of those things exist in my relationship to myself. I was recently talking to a friend about it and like, I don't know, the only way that I could really think to talk about my relationship to myself, and this is like things that I've worked on, like I love myself deeply, but the world that I live in has told me that it's not, I'm not like entirely ugly or entirely undesirable or entirely terrible. I think there's often this narrative that the world full stop tells us as dark skinned black women, that we are like pathetic, ugly, undesirable and all of that stuff, which is the message for sure. But beneath that is something more innocuous and like a little bit more painful, which is like, no, 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 you, you might be desirable, you might be beautiful, you might be all of those things, but you're an acquired taste, you're not to everybody's liking and that's just the way that it is. So we're given this like glimmer of hope that someone will see the beauty in me or someone will see the worth in me and that's what I'm hoping for and that's what I'm working towards, which leads to like a lot of very twisted, internalised like self-loathing and I had to really come to terms with that because I've never hated myself, I've never thought that I was ugly, I've never thought that I was, you know, whatever, any of those things that stereotypically dark-skinned women are assumed to think about themselves. I've always found myself really beautiful and cool and fun and, you know, all of that stuff. But in the back of my mind, I've bought into the belief that I'm an acquired taste and that's the normal way that things are. That's just the way of the world. And it was, yeah, it took like me coming to, to, to Nam actually meeting you through, <laughs> through my brother, um, and meeting all these other black women who grew up way outside of where I was, who grew up around other black women, who grew up with sometimes their aunties and, and their grandmothers and whatnot, to see that that idea that of, of like an acquired taste or whatever is false. And it's not, I don't know, like it's 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 more com- it's more complicated than just like wanting people to find you beautiful. It's it's about finding your sense of worth in a world that tells you otherwise. And I think like power in numbers in the sense that once I was around a lot of other black women, lots of different kinds of black women, it really forced me to question how such a broad, beautiful, diverse group of human beings in the world could be anything other than like glorious and great and capable. And, you know, we can be evil, we can be great, we can be everything in between. And there's, there's no room for my thinking of blackness that should allow for this idea of we're just not everyone's cup of tea, you know? No, I I definitely uh, hear where you're coming from. And to go back to something you said um, in your response in that sort of these expected uh, feelings of self-loathing that dark women are expected to have, I think it's, it's also that they're subscribed to them, right? And that these are the messages and this is the value that is given to such a person. 
And so I, I think it's just a, um, definitely just internalized. You also touched briefly on colorism. And you've been speaking about colorism, I think, um, since 2015. And also I liked what you said, you know, around being around other Black women, being around other dark-skinned Black women, and just that being an affirming experience. Not that necessarily we sat there and unpacked a whole bunch of things, but just in being together, it was so affirming and beautiful. And so my question around colorism is how has it shown up in your life and how do you tackle it in kind of in your growing, in your extensions of yourself, in your art, in your expressions? Can you speak on that? Mm, I definitely have incidentally talked about colorism for a long time. I don't think I had the language for it for a long time, but I sort of over time have like started to figure it out a little bit I just think it's so pervasive and I think it's handy and helpful to talk about things like colorism things like I don't know what else like sizeism some people talk about texturism with hair and all these isms that exist in the world under the blanket of anti-blackness and white supremacy and all of that stuff is super duper real but I think people who struggle with these concepts are struggling to remember that they all go back to anti-blackness and they all go back to white supremacy and it's they're like the little branches under that big umbrella that's trying to hold us back and hold us down simultaneously but when it comes like it's just so so mind-bending because a lot of people sort of want to talk about these things in relation to desirability and specifically in relation to how straight cis men look at us and whether we're desirable to straight cis men. And I think that's really limiting, but a lot of, you know, a lot of dark-skinned black women and just people in general buy into that and sort of place their, their worth on their desirability and their desirability on how they are viewed by straight cis men. And that's really problematic, but... I don't know. It's just really sad seeing all of that stuff and how it becomes internalized play out in relationships between people that are outside of sexual relationships and outside of intimate relationships. And I find that like, there's just so much internalized colorism everywhere, like absolutely everywhere. Like in the most obvious ways in terms of all these like extremely beautiful dark skin people bleaching their skin, which I, that's a conversation for another time. People have been trying to unpack it for a million years and I don't think we'll anytime soon get to like the pinnacle of that. I have my feelings about it, but it is what it is all the way to people like, like myself, even doing things to my natural hair in order to make it look more beautiful or whatever. And those things are usually, for the most part, like maybe I'll put twists in it so that it's stretched out and looks bouncier and fluffier as an afro, as opposed to just like washing and combing my hair and have it in tight, having it in a tight afro, which is its actual natural state. And we've just internalized without 100% thinking about it. Like all these makeup trends with um, everybody, everybody is, is, is making their nose as snatched as possible now in makeup. And I just cannot wrap my head around that. Like, how do like how along the way did these beauty standards that come from like the western white beauty standards how did they get sort of confused with our own desire to just like beautify for the sake of beautifying and like get melted in that we just think it's like oh no 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 I'm not trying to get a, a white nose I'm trying to get a snatched nose like where's the the line between that um but I don't know when it comes to my own life 
I'm unpacking colorism in relationship really to how I view myself and compare myself to others. And it's never about which men want us and which men don't want us. It's more about like how comfortable in the world do we feel? How capable of like living our actual truth and speaking our minds without being dismissed or whatever do we feel when we're in a group with multiple black people of different shades who do we gravitate towards? Who do we sit next to? Whose voices do we want to hear more? You know, um, who do we critique more? Like it's so, so ingrained that it's like so difficult for people to unpack. And I think that's why there's a lot of resilience to conversations about colorism because we've all to some extent internalized it and no one wants to accept that they have. And no one really wants to do that work of unpacking it because it would mean unpacking every single aspect of your life. Like, who are you matching with on Tinder? You know, who are you chatting to when you see like, say for example, like three people in a shop and they're all like various shades of black or whatever, instinctively, who do you look at first or not? And why? Cause I know that I might look at the most dark person because I feel safe with that dark person. And I might feel threatened by the lighter skinned people because of the way that I feel like society gives them more passes. So I don't think that they will like, treat me the same you know it's like it's deeply 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 complicated um but I think it's worth talking about I saw um two really interesting examples on Instagram this week and it was uh one around you know a video and um, it was really interesting to see who the artists had in the foreground and who they had in the background um, it's also, you know, uh, there's a, a wonderful um, South Sudanese American vlogger I think they go by simply Nyajal on Instagram and they did a makeup tutorial. And at the, at the end, they went enlightened. And I thought that was so gorgeous and awesome. Um, so it was really interesting for me this week kind of seeing those, those, those two things happening. It is also quite common, and I don't think this is new in this current era, but artists that make incredible work are idealized. But you, in, in your practice and what you do, you, you talk about, you know, how you're problematic. Why do you have that practice of recognising that complexity within yourself? <laughs> how I'm problematic. Part of it is because I think I'm a comedian. Let's be real about that. I think I'm hilarious and I just think that the world hasn't caught up to my level of humour. <laughs> um, I think, like, to be real, though, I, I think I have been really lucky to have lots of opportunities to speak about my art practice. And because, you know, we live in the contemporary world and the contemporary art sphere, me speaking about my practice means I have to talk about myself and me speaking about myself as a South Sudanese woman living in this country means that I have to speak about blackness in general, because I talk about these things in my art. And I find that People really, really, really want to just latch onto what I say as the be-all, end-all of how black women or South Sudanese people or whatever feel. And I have a lot of opinions and I'm really, like, passionate about my opinions and I'm grateful to have that. But I'm sick of having to remind everybody that I am speaking just for me. And I have to do a lot of backflips to do that as well in the sense that I can never just say... Um, I have to be careful, I should say. I have to be careful to not leave my words up for uh, a, like a broad interpretation. If I say, for example, when we were just talking about colorism, that we've all internalized colorism, which is to, my, to me like a true fact, 
I can't have like a, a publication or an institution think that that's how all black people feel, you know, regardless of how true it feels to me, because I don't think that it, as far as we've come as black people in the world fighting the good fight, I just do not think that the non-black world is ready to accept that we are individuals with our own different sort of perspectives, experiences and thoughts and opinions, um, which leads to institutions looking for that one black or that one, I don't know, whatever, to give them permission to stop doing the work, you know? Because, I don't know, I just don't want what I say to be the be-all and end-all of conversations around things. Like, I want there to be room for it. So I often have to remind not just institutions but, like, people who, I don't know, have stumbled across my Instagram or whatever that perhaps I just felt like that was true on Tuesday but Wednesday I could have actually done more research and established that that's not actually how I feel about said thing. And not only is that like, okay, that's really, 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 really good in my opinion. I think it's great to have conversations about the world we live in that, that change and grow and um, expand and contract because that's the nature of the world that we live in. And when it comes to politics as well, like it's so dangerous to put anyone's any one opinion on a pedestal that doesn't allow for space for people reading or watching that opinion to think that other people from that same group may think differently. And that's not even just in the sense of like, when we talk about America, not all black people in America are Democrats. Some of them are Republicans. Like that's not even what I'm getting at. It's like within those liberals, let's not pretend that they're all, um, that they're all pro-LGBTQ, you know, let's have room for conversations around the people who have all the right politics in quotations but are homophobic or sexist or whatever because then that allows us to, like, continue those conversations and work towards change and growth and betterment. Um, And I think especially, like, living in this country, I feel like we're just so, so far behind. And by we, I mean like <laughs> non-Indigenous people in this country and settlers and, and refugees and migrants and all of that. There's just so much work to be done in terms of getting to a point of, of the non-monolith perspective of people and the non-sort of exclusive view. And like we're still, still, still at the model minority stage and that's going to take a lot of time to work through. And that's like there's just let me be problematic. Let me breathe. You know, I did not elect to be anyone's representative and no one wants me to be their representative. At the end of the day is what, has there been a survey done on South Sudanese people? Do they want me to be their representative? I don't think so. Let me represent a Tonga Tem. Let me represent a Tonga Tem in the year in which I'm speaking and let there be room for a Tonga Tem to grow, expand and change. Like who knows, maybe six months from now, I'm going to completely change my mind on everything (laughs) and let's, let's have space for that. I definitely agree about let's have space for all of us to to grow and change. I'm really curious to know, because your art is so interlinked with uh, your experience of the world in which you find yourself, I'm curious if there is room for separate conversation around craft, how you pick the colours that you paint on your face, how you pick the fabrics, how you conceptualize what the set of a photography shoot will look like. Is there room for that kind of conversation around that craft? And also 
I, I guess I'm also wondering, like, is how does that also interlink with um, your experiences and what you're exploring? And, you know, for example, let's say colorism, is that something you have in mind when you're thinking about a shoot, the lighting? Because I think you shoot dark-skinned people amazingly. I have, I have, I'm yet to really see someone in, in, in my generation um, do something similar. So I, I very much respect that about you. So I'm just kind of wondering, you know, how interlinked is it? And is it, is it, is it fair to say that there's some sort of separation somewhere or does that just all, is that just woven together? Uh, first of all, thank you. That's a massive compliment. I think it's all interlinked. Absolutely. In the sense that when I've tried to speak about my practice on a practical level and how I conceptualize and how I execute my work, I often don't know how to talk about it because it feels so intrinsic and so like, you know, psychic and it's just, it just comes to me and I just feel it and blah, blah, blah. But I've, you know, looked into it and unpacked that because I don't think that that's a good enough for me response to the question. And what it really is, is that I've spent my entire life escaping, you know, escaping because I didn't have media that I felt represented or like looked like or made me feel safe or whatever growing up. So I escaped in a lot of ways. I read a lot of sci-fi. I looked at a lot of, I watched a lot of um, 60s and 70s, like campy films. And I watched The Simpsons religiously, basically. I was obsessed with and still am obsessed with The Simpsons. Um, I looked to like, to fiction and to fantasy and sort of the surreal as mechanisms of escape. I didn't, I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but that's looking back at it. That's kind of what it was. So I now have like this elaborate, long, intensive library of references in my mind that I've had my whole life essentially, or that I've spent my whole life um, adding to. So when I want to make a work, I, I still do look at a lot of stuff on online, for example, and look through books for research. I'm constantly collecting and archiving things that look beautiful or feel beautiful or, you know, give me some sort of inspiration or they're striking. Like I'm constantly collecting in that way. And the outcome of that has been that it's just in my, it's in my head, it's in my brain, the things that I've really, really figured out over time, the things that I really like and why I like them versus the things that don't necessarily work for me and why they don't work for me. And I really encourage any artist or any person that's starting out in the creative field to do that. It really, like, it just serves you so well to have like almost a Bible of your your creativity and how, how you can sort of talk about and condense your, your thinking and um, what you gravitate to, towards and then unpack why you gravitate towards those things. So to bring it back to your question, I gravitate towards colour because I grew up with it to some extent, like my family and a lot of South Sudanese family love colour. I gravitate towards florals because I grew up with my mum loving to decorate the house with plastic flowers from the $2 store. And as a kid, I was like, oh, that's, that's a sign of something that's beautiful. Like that's, and we're bringing the flowers out, especially when we've got guests over. So that's something to be proud of. And I have such a love affair with, with portraits of black people because those were the first things of black people that I saw, you know, growing up, we had all those photo albums with photos from all our family members around the world posing at a photo studio and there's a very specific language to how those poses and those photos are made. So that's also something that is part of my visual reference library. These are just things that 
I either grew up with or came to later in life that make me feel a certain way. And the art that I want to create, I want it to be imbued with those things that I feel and that I seek to feel because my existence as a black woman in the world is for everybody imbued with so much. So let me have some power and imbue stuff into the work that I'm making and, and yeah, like sort of create this sort of unreal world that we don't necessarily live in, but that feels so good to me. It's a world full of like colorful things, like beautifully photographed dark skin. And I gravitate towards taking photos more often than not of dark skin people, because in a lot of ways I've spoken about my work. And I think this is true as an ongoing self-portrait, like an an, an internal self-portrait. Every time I take a photo of another person, it feels like I'm taking a photo of myself or, or I'm working around my relationship to myself in that way. And so the, the, the care that I put into that, I think is like the care that I wish to have for myself or the care that I'm working towards having for myself. So there's a lot of like, uh, yeah, I try to be delicate and I try to be yeah, really centered when I take portraits and the things and the people that I gravitate towards taking portraits of tend to be people who I feel safe around. So it's predominantly black women, predominantly dark skinned black women. And it's a space because like in, in those portrait sessions, it's a space that I feel like I'm allowed, you know, and I can That reminds me of a quote by you I recently read and it goes, there is nothing more powerful than a person being portrayed by their own people because it's only then they can exist as individuals rather than ideas. And I think, Atong, you are, you are, or your work is, I think, a living, a living archive of that. So I think that's really awesome. You are now getting more recognition as an artist, a relative as that may be. Has that changed anything for you or do you imagine what it may or may not change? (laughs) Yeah, it's changed a lot for me, for sure. I feel like I have to be more conscious of, of how I'm presenting myself and talking about my work because my work is so intrinsically about people. So I have, I feel like I have a little responsibility when I'm talking broadly about black people or broadly about South Sudanese women or whatever in that I have to concede with the fact that for a lot of people when they hear me talk about South Sudanese women and my love affair with South Sudanese women or whatever that may be the first time that they're hearing that and it's not my responsibility per se to make people not be racist or whatever and to make people not see what I say is like monolithic but I, I've decided to, you know, choose my words carefully and emphasize the fact that this is the Atonga Tem story when I speak. The other way that it being having a little bit more recognition has affected me is that I am seeing myself take myself a little bit more seriously, which is interesting. I think for a long time I was really resistant to the idea of taking my work seriously and taking my art seriously because it felt like if I took it seriously, then it would be serious work and it would have to be like, you know, furrowed brow, deep thinking kind of work and that the fun would be removed from it. And that's the last thing I ever wanted. I spent so long trying to like delegitimize my practice in order for it to remain just a fun side project because we're sort of taught that you can't talk about blackness without it being somber and you can't talk about South Sudan without it being about war and trauma 
And I was afraid of taking my work seriously because it touches on these things that are historically meant to be heavy and difficult and predominantly negative. Uh, The work that I've done recently on myself is coming to terms with the fact that that's not true. That is not a truth. That's just the way things have been. And I'm allowed to be celebratory. I'm allowed to speak from love when I speak about these things. I'm allowed to acknowledge my trauma and other people's trauma that I've witnessed in a way that is respectful and honors the depth of that. But I'm also allowed to like make work that is fun to make, that feels good to make. And not just in like the cathartic sense of like, you know, seeing a therapist or whatever, but yeah, I just reclaiming a space of like positivity and love in my practice has been a big, big thing. And I think the more recognition or like opportunities that I get and the busier my schedule becomes, the more that I really have to find myself back into that center of like love, enjoyment and passion for the thing that I'm doing because opportunities don't always come with the space for you to nurture yourself. And they don't always come with the space for you to look after yourself. So you have to really, 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 really make it happen. And I don't want to burn out. I feel like I've just started and I'm not ready to burn out. I think it happened a little bit about five years ago when I first sort of started exhibiting work here and I had an amazing opportunity to go to New York and show my work. And it was all just sort of like the beginning of the wheels turning and I was really excited. And I said yes to everything. I did lots of free work, which I still like to do, but I just did it because I felt a responsibility and a duty. And because every other person that I talked to was like, oh, a tongue, you're, you know, leading the way and there's not, there's not enough black women. There's not enough South Sudanese women doing the things that you're doing. Keep going, you know, good job, blah, blah, blah. And I really internalized that pressure because I, in, in some ways, those encouraging words of like, you know, you're one of the first or whatever, they came with this sort of unspoken, you might be the last, there might not be another after you. And I think I internalize that. I internalize that like I'm the be all and end all and I have to be really careful and I have to do this, that and the other and represent. I have to say yes to everything and, and speak at this and do this and blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, can't, I have to be like the model minority, essentially. I have to be good at all times. I have to be smiling at all times, positive at all times. And I burnt out. I burnt out so badly. I had a, it was terrible. And then I ran away and lived with my friends in Fiji for a few months and just like, yeah, had a great time. But um, upon returning, I realized that like, I'm allowed to just be myself and like do my thing and have fun and make my work make me feel good because I'm not living for other people. I'm living for myself. And if others see something positive in that, that inspires them, that's brilliant and really, really good. But that's not my core purpose in the world. And I I think partly due to some sort of like some cultural, um, yeah, like traditions or whatever in relation to like the patriarchal world that we live in and the patriarchal society that a lot of South Sudanese people grow up in, I internalize the sense that my only responsibility in the world is to be dutiful and is to like, you know, be carry burdens and to, to support and whatever. And the idea of like living for myself and for my joy and for my, my pleasure, that seems like the biggest sin <laughs> known to man. Um, so I've done a lot of work to allow myself to have fun in my practice and to have a sense of like just duty and responsibility to my health 
and my joy and my like okayness. And within that comes like a love for supporting and helping the people that I love in the world and the people around me. That stuff brings me joy. But I only found that out when I centered my own joy in being an artist and in talking about things that I care about. Yeah. So (laughs) I don't know. It can get very, very stressful as you grow. (laughs) That's incredible and super valuable. And Atong, we're in a hard lockdown currently. Where are you finding joy? Where are you finding pleasure? I. (laughs) Because I also know you have taken up skating. Is that right? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Roller skating is where I find joy planting my little vegetables on the windowsill because I live in a tiny little apartment with no outdoor space. That's where I find joy. Making recipes from scratch, making bread from scratch, baking cakes, things like that is where I find joy. And I think like the grand theme of all of that stuff is creating, but it's creating for me, you know, like sort of that lack of pressure to this content farm that we call being an artist sometimes, especially an artist on the internet. I feel like I really have just found my center in a lot of ways. Um, this lockdown has been difficult for a lot of reasons and I'm sure it will continue to be difficult, but I think it's also forced me to really, really like figure out how I, how I am okay. Like what leads to me being okay. And outside of like, okay enough to produce or okay enough to make work or do work, just okay. One of the things that make me okay is when I feel like I'm nurturing myself or the people around me. And since I can't see none of your beautiful people that I love, I have to nurture myself. (laughs) So I'm growing plants and doing lots of cute things like that. And roller skating has been really, really good because it just represents like childhood freedom and joy and things that I maybe didn't have access to in a kid as a kid for lots of different reasons. So I'm reliving, like, I feel like I'm having a second childhood because we're in a state like it is, it's, it's, I can't like wrap my mind around how intense this pandemic has been and how global, like it's pretty terrifying. And I feel like for me personally, when things are scary and, um, overwhelming, I kind of revert to what my inner child needs. That's kind of the only thing you could, I could do. It's sort of like going down to the most basic. And for a long time, my inner child just needed like healing you know, so there was just a lot of like, I'm just going to lay still for a long time, or I'm going to draw like just really gentle healing things for many years. And I think I'm at a really good point in my life now when my inner child is like, I want to go outside and roller skate babes, or I want to bake a strawberry shortcake. And I'm just choosing to honor, honor the journey that I've been on internally, honor the path that I've walked and how far I've come for myself and my own mental health and my own physical health and all of that stuff. And I think like if there's nothing else that I feel I can do during this lockdown, it's just to continue to honor the things that I've done for myself to try to be as okay for myself as possible. And like the work is secondary But interestingly enough, the more that I honor my own joy and okayness, the better the work that I make becomes. So I think there's a lesson in there somewhere. 
That's so important, Atong. It's been a really interesting time because I find myself having Medida at like 2 p.m. in the afternoon for lunch. So everything is just really warped and um, intense, like he said. But I think it's so important to, to nurture ourselves and to be to be loving towards ourselves and to let ourselves off the hook as well and just to be gentle and compassionate. This is, I think, is a really fun question and I'm super interested to uh, hear what you think. Who are... Sassanese writers or visual artists or photographers that you really admire and like and enjoy their work? Oh, what a brilliant question. I love it. So I absolutely have to say Big Wachol is one of my favourite poets, writers in the entire universe. Um, I don't know if you know her like that, but she's pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I when I was thinking about this actually, I realize that the majority of them are the people that I met here. So like Ruth, I love Ruth's photography. I'm genuinely so inspired by her and I just get so excited when once every like three months she blesses us with an image and it's always, always, always st- stunning. Also Nyandeng who started taking film photos of, um, of her siblings in the lockdown and they're just like, I don't know if you've seen them, but they are so mind-blowing. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. So, so beautiful. And I also have such, like, Adut is one of my favourite, favourite writers, and I keep going back to um, the writing that she did for that book. What's it called? You know, the book? Growing Up African. Yeah. Yeah. Growing Up African in Australia. Yeah, I find that I really just get so much from the people who have had similar experiences to me in this particular country, and it just constantly blows my mind what all of you all are capable of doing and just feeling really honoured to have, have have you all in my life and vice versa. And it's no coincidence that those are the people that I tend to photograph all the time as well, you know what I mean? The other person that I must, must, must talk about is my sister, Nancy. She is the most incredibly talented musician. She's so talented. Her voice is really beautiful. She plays guitar. She's very coy and humble, but she's She's very, 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 very talented. And I just want everyone to pay attention to where she's going because I think like she said to me one time, I don't know if she came up with this with this metaphor, but she said to me one time, Atong, you walked so that I could run. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, girl, I think you're under something there. Like, it doesn't feel nice to hear, but it's true. Yeah. And I'm really grateful that you feel feel more capable than I did growing up. So my little baby sister is like a big inspiration for me as well. For those at the intersections of multiplicity, identity is deeply personal, complex, and far from stagnant. But this is in no way a representation of the totality of Atong's journey, nor should it. I have a profound respect for her audacity to dignify African imagery through photography that beautifully and deliberately centers Black people as people. But in particular, and I emphasize South Sudanese women. If you would like to follow Atonga Tem's work, you can do so on Instagram at Atonga Tem, spelt A-T-O-N-G-A-T-E-M, or on her website at www.atongatem.com. Don't forget, all this information can be found in the show notes. That was me, in conversation with Atong Atem. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening in to FCAC Radio. 
produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre and proudly supported by Maribyrnong City Council and City of Melbourne's COVID-19 Arts Grants. FCAC is a not-for-profit, independently run community arts organisation that supports over 550 artists annually. You can support FCAC by donating to the centre, hiring our venue, coming to our events or sharing our content online. Follow at Footscray Arts on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit footscrayarts.com to find out more. We appreciate your support and generosity.